You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday before Christmas. I hope you are staying well and that you and your family are making room for Jesus to be born again in your hearts this Christmas season. And as we continue to wade through these unprecedented times in our country, I wanted to start a new teaching series. I think this is going to be three parts. I'm calling it One Nation Under God? Question mark. Uh, it's going to be a look at the rather complicated relationship between church and state. So tonight's conversation is going to focus on the question, is America a Christian nation? This is not going to be an exhaustively complete discussion of the issue, but I do want to offer a few thoughts on the matter that I have found helpful in my own journey. And my hope is that these things will help you as well. So with that said, let's get into this. Now, you may or may not have seen this last weekend, uh, the Jericho March, which was a big rally in Washington, D.C. And you can go check out their website and their content here. It's at JerichoMarch.org. And uh, this is really a large effort uh, around um, pray, sort of a mixture of a prayer rally and a pep rally, uh, American patriotism and Christianity. I'm not going to play any clips from the event because I don't want to get a copyright strike, but you can go watch the, the talks that were done there um, in their entirety. They're on the Jericho March uh, webpage. But the kind of the theme is Joshua marching around uh, Jericho and praying for Trump, uh, trying to... Um, make efforts uh, to look at the integrity of our election. And again, it's kind of this mixture of prayer meeting, Christian pep rally, American patriotism, and Joshua marching around Jericho sort of all together. And in the days that followed that event, then there were a parade of tweets condemning Christian nationalism or what is being called Christian Trumpism. Uh, this tweet by Beth Moore in particular received quite a lot of attention. And um, she says, I've not seen anything in these United States of America. I found more astonishingly, astonishingly seductive and dangerous to the saints of God than Trumpism. This Christian nationalism is not of God. Move back from it. And so, uh, that was Miss Moore's perspective, and she is uh, a key thought leader and voice in the Southern Baptist Convention. Orthodox thinker Ron Dreher had a provocative editorial about this issue on the American Conservative website. I'm not going to rehash that here, but you can go check that out as well. It's very provocative, and um, he he had some interesting points that he was making here and, and expressing some of his concerns about the, the uh, Christian pep rally. Um, but probably what got the most attention was this piece by Michael Horton uh, on the Gospel Coalition website called The Cult of Christian Trumpism. And I do find it interesting. I don't think uh, Mr. Dreher is part of Big Eva. He's kind of an outsider. But Beth Moore and Michael Horton, I would definitely, the Gospel Coalition, put them in the category of kind of the what I call the big Eva machine of the well-financed uh, entities that seem to want to control the narrative of what evangelicals ought to believe. Uh, and I, I do find this all a little interesting. In my candid opinion, I feel like this is just an intuition. This is an opinion. This isn't like something I die for, but I feel like some of these accusations about the idolatry of Trump and idolatry of patriotism and using terms like the cult of patriotism and nationalism seem to be a, like a bit of a straw man. I, I, I'm not aware of anybody who worships Trump. I know there's people that, that really like Trump, you know, and, you know, I'm sure there's probably some people who think that he's quasi a messiah. I don't know any of those people, but 
I, I do feel like there's a lot of like kind of we call them in logic, like a straw man or maybe a different fallacy, like a sweeping generalization about people. And, and I also am wondering whether maybe some of these recent strong condemnations against Christian Trumpism maybe are partly an effort to shame and to silence those church members who have been critical of church leaders who are soft on, on, you know, more progressive issues. And, and, you know, I don't know, it it almost feels like some retaliation to me, but maybe I'm reading into that. I could be way off there again. That's just a theory, but I, I do think it was interesting that all of these conversations are happening right now as we're still trying to figure out and sort out the election. And there's still a lot of unanswered questions about the integrity of our election and what's going to happen going forward. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to address the question, is America a Christian nation? And some people will immediately respond, well, of course it is. While others will explain, exclaim, absolutely not. (laughs) And both opinions strongly held. And those who answer absolutely not, they, they generally deny that, um, most of the the founding fathers, they would say they were not religious. Um, they would also contend that many of the founding fathers of our country were deists and, and they were shaped uh, largely by the Enlightenment and that they rejected critical Christian doctrines such as the virgin birth and miracles. Thomas Jefferson's Bible is very well known for this as a well-cited example on that side of the conversation. On the other side of the coin are those voices that say, of course, America is a Christian nation. Some advocates will even try to make the case that nearly all of the founding fathers were devout Orthodox Christians who consciously drew their religious beliefs uh, from the Bible to shape their political ideas. I, and I think that that's true of some of them. Some of them were that way. But I I do also think that it's a bit of a stretch to say nearly all of them were, um, as is often suggested by these advocates. So the brief version of my personal position and my current thinking on this, as I've given this some thought over the last 25 years, is that both of these views are probably incorrect. I think the founding fathers were attempting to build a secular political order based on broadly Christian principles. But they were also influenced in very large measure by the philosophy of people like John Locke, uh, the ancient Greco-Roman Republic, and the Enlightenment. And so just as many Christians today are shaped by a combination of the Bible and secular cultural ideas, um, I I think it's reasonable to expect the same for our founding fathers. So tonight, what I would like to do is to share three points about the relationship between our faith as Christians and our country. And my hope is that this will be of some help to you. My hope is that by providing kind of some organizing principles that I have found helpful, that they might be useful to you as well and give you some ways to help organize your thoughts. And um, maybe if, if I do things correctly, uh, help to shape our own political thinking in a more biblical way. Okay, my first point is that America does not have a covenant relationship with God the same way that Israel did. I think this is a very important foundational um, kind of mental hook to get in your head. I don't believe that the founding fathers were attempting to create a theocracy in the technical sense, the way that Israel was a theocracy and a theocracy is a type of government where God is the king. Now, the founding fathers did certainly tap into a lot of biblical principles from the Old Testament law. And we're going to talk about some of those things a little later in the teaching, but Uh, They were also influenced and shaped, as I said earlier, by other secular philosophies as well. So we have to put all of these things into their proper context. Now, one of the key purposes behind the Mosaic Law is that God was entering into a special covenant agreement with Israel as a people, as a nation. He would make them into a nation 
where he would be their king and lawgiver and they would be his people. And one of my Old Testament profs would repeatedly made the observation to us when I was in seminary about the parallels between a Jewish marriage ceremony and what was happening in the giving of the Mosaic law in the book of Exodus. So quick shout out to my old seminary professor, Dr. Ron Pierce there, the awesome professor of Old Testament. My daughter, Emily, just had him last semester for the book of Daniel. And so cool that we both had the same couple of the same profs mentor both of us in our educational journey. So that's just a little side tangent. I digress. But God's covenant relationship with Israel is um, what made it so insulting to God when they asked for a human king. They were essentially rejecting God as their true king. And we see this play out in the book of 1 Samuel. And I've got this passage here is in chapter eight, if you want to read the whole thing. But as Samuel grew older, he appointed his sons as kind of Israel's leaders or judges. Um, But the people come to him in verse six and they say, give us a king to lead us. And Samuel prays about this. He goes to the Lord and the Lord says, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not that they have. You that they have rejected, they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now, listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So I'm going to scroll up here a little bit more. It says this is what the king who will reign over you. This is what he's going to do. Now listen to this. He's going to take your, your sons. He's going to send them out to war. They're going to get killed. Some of them, he's going to put as commanders. Um, and others, he's going to conscript into being farmers to grow food for him and, and reap harvest for him. Uh, some will force, be forced into making weapons of warfare. Uh, he's going to take your daughters and he's going to conscript them into service They're going to do things for him. He was going to confiscate your property. He's going to take the best of your vineyards. In other words, he's going to take your wealth. Okay. And he's going to give it to his associates. He's going to take a 10th of your grain. He's going to take a 10% tax. Now notice that God's telling them, these are all the oppressive things that are going to happen to you in God's um, kingdom in his justice program. A tenth is what belonged to God. That was the tithe. But the human king comes along and oppresses the people. And he's acting as if he is God. He's putting himself in the place of God by taking the tenth. And God is saying, this is not my will for you. Um, I want you to trust me. Your your servants, your best donkeys, your cattle, your, your ways of basically maintaining Uh, Your living, he will take for his own use. He will not regard property. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And so what is happening in Israel is that this becomes a wedge in the relationship between God and his people. So God could still kind of reign if the kings were righteous which is what we saw with David and to some degree with Solomon. But unfortunately, most kings were not. So this was the special relationship that Israel had with God. They were a theocracy. He gave them his law and he was to be their king. But after a while, they didn't want that. So they rejected God as their king and they wanted to have a government like everybody else. So when we read these words in 2 Chronicles 7, we have to keep in mind that these words are not a promise to America directly. They were a promise to Israel because of their special relationship with God. So this verse in 2 Chronicles 7 is quoted on every national prayer day. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, 
seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal my land. Now, could this verse apply to us as a church? Yes. I think that as a general principle, if God's people will pray and humble themselves, in other words, repent of their sins, God will hear their prayers. And that I think does have an, an a salt and light effect on the country in which they live. But this promise is not a promise to us as Americans. It is a general principle of how God interacts with his unique covenant people. So who is he in a covenant relationship with now? It's us as Christians, not with our nation. So in this sense, I would agree with this random tweet from a person. I have no idea who they are. Um, For all I know, they could be a progressive. (laughs) Um, Our country is covenantally no different than any other country. So this tweet, America is no more special to God than Africa, Ecuador, Scotland, or Belgium. Let's stop pretending that America is God's favorite child. And I think that there is some truth in this tweet from a covenantal perspective. Now, are we as God's people, as his children, as his family, as his household, special to to the father? Absolutely. But he doesn't have a covenant relationship with our country the same way that he had with Israel. So that's my first point. Number two, God expects all nations to follow general principles of his standards of justice. And if they don't, judgment will happen. Now, I think this is a very important point that I don't see a whole lot of Christian uh, thought leaders addressing. So I'm going to try to give a, a little overview here. When Noah and his family got off the ark in Genesis chapter nine, God restated the commands that he had given to Adam to multiply and fill the earth. This is called uh, by theologians. I'm going to give you a big $5 seminary word. Okay. You can impress all your friends and family at dinner parties. This is called the Noahic covenant. It is the covenant that God made with Noah. Sometimes this passage in Genesis chapter nine is also referred to by Jewish scholars as the covenant of the Gentiles. And I'm going to look at a couple of verses here in uh, chapter nine of Genesis that are particularly relevant for our conversation. And you can see here that this is the section where God is um, saying that if, if a human being is intentionally killed, that their life will be demanded. So this is basically the foundation for capital punishment. Now, what I want us to understand why I laid that framework, that this is the Noahic covenant is also called the covenant of the Gentiles. I want us to understand that this was not a covenant just with, for Jews. This was a covenant for the nations. It was a covenant that God made with all humans, just as he did with Adam and Eve. Okay. So even pagan nations were expected from God's point of view to honor human life and not engage in things like torture and murder and that kind of a thing. So if they did, there would be consequences. God would send judgment. And when we turn the pages, just a few pages later to Genesis chapter 19, Um, We read about one such judgment. We read about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah due to their wicked practices of homosexuality. And um, I would say that this was an affront to another aspect of the Noahic covenant, which was the go um, be fruitful and multiply. That homosexuality was a, a direct undermining of that aspect of the covenant to the Gentiles. And these detestable things are mentioned in Leviticus, but I'm going to actually look at this verse in Ezekiel. It's a very interesting passage. It says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. So he's speaking here to his own people and he's comparing them to Sodom. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. 
she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. And so many people will stop reading at verse 49. They'll say, see, the sin of Sodom doesn't have anything to do with homosexuality. This was a social justice problem. They didn't help the poor and the needy. That's why God came against them. But we have to go on and read the very next verse in verse 50. They were haughty. They were proud. In other words, they did what was right in their own eyes. And they did detestable things before me. And when we look in the Hebrew at this word detestable, this is the same qualifier that was used to describe homosexuality. These detestable things. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So God's telling his own people, look, just as I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for these detestable problems, I'm going to come against you. God's judgment also comes against the nations in the first chapters of Amos. Monique and I just finished a three-part study on the book of Amos. So I'm going to refer you back to part one of my series on Amos to find out more about that situation. We went over that in some detail. But what we see repeated in Amos chapter one in the beginning of chapter two is that God raises up nations and he judges nations. And if you break in particular this Noahic covenant, this covenant with the Gentiles, if you engage in these gross practices, these detestable practices, God will judge nations. Um, I want to look at one more scripture along these lines, and it's from the book of Daniel. We've been reading through Daniel in our family devotions in the last week or two. And I love how Daniel chapter one starts. He says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now notice, who delivered Judah's king into the hand of the pagan king? The Lord delivered him. The people, the, the nation of Judah was judged by God. But it wasn't a judgment that just fell out of the sky. It came through this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. And that's how God does it. When we turn to chapter five, we read this in Daniel, Belshazzar. Belshazzar, Belshazzar was giving a great feast for all of his, his um, nobles. They were getting drunk and uh, they brought out the, the, um, the things from the temple that were in Jerusalem and they were using them to drink out of the sacred goblets that were in the temple and used for sacred purposes. Suddenly they see the fingers of this hand writing on the wall. And I'm going to scroll down here to what it says in uh, Daniel's interpretation of, of what happens here. All right, here's the inscription. Many, many tickle parson. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. So who is, who is numbered the, the, the reign of Belshazzar is God. He's been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So God raises up kingdoms. He raised up Nebuchadnezzar and he takes away kingdoms. He took away Jehoiakim's kingdom and now he's taken away Belshazzar's kingdom. This is just a microcosm of a dynamic that we see throughout the scripture. God puts people in power and he lowers them. He humbles them when they don't give him proper honor. This principle is echoed in the New Testament as well. Jesus is standing on trial before Pilate in John chapter 19, and he has this exchange with Pilate. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power to either free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, you have no power over me. Now underline this in your Bible. If it were not given to you from above. This is where kings get power. It is from God himself. God puts kings on thrones. God determines when nations rise 
and fall. So I'm going to not take the time to look at Romans 13, but that's another passage that I would commend to you. So the question is, is does God still judge nations today? And I have people ask me this from time to time. Um, I would say, yes, he does. He clearly judged nations during the time of biblical history. I have no reason to think that God changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So I think it's reasonable to infer from that, that God still puts kings and presidents in charge and he brings them low and nations rise and fall and nations can be used by God to bring judgment against other nations. So the obvious next question is, is where is our country on that judgment continuum? Now I can't definitively answer that, but I would say that I think as a country, we are in deep trouble. (laughs) We have a history of embedding laws into our country that made people slaves. Now, thankfully, as a nation, we came to our senses, we fought a war, and we made slavery illegal. Unfortunately, then many states in our country passed laws that continued to make people of color second-class citizens, didn't give them equal protection under the law. But again, thankfully, we came to our senses, we ended those laws, we put new laws in place, to try to ensure equality for all. But we still have very profound problems. We currently have laws in our country that allow for the innocent, the murder of innocent children on demand. We have laws in our country that have legalized an unbiblical definition of marriage. We also have an unbelievable amount of debt and high taxes as a nation. When a king or a president puts themselves up as God, taking our income to help take care of us in a way that God wants to take care of us, this is something that God's word speaks against. We still struggle as a nation to hate evil, protect the innocent, and punish the guilty. And so I encourage you, go read the, the section on the curses in Deuteronomy 28, Start at verse 15. What happens when God starts uh, to, to come against a country? What does that country start to look like? Their food supply gets contaminated. Their riches go down. There's violence in the land. Um, they prey on the poor. So I do start to wonder whether God's hand is against us. Now, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the daughter of a prophet. So my assertion that our country may be under God's judgment to some degree will have to remain in the realm of speculation, but that is how I see it at the, at this moment, based on my best understanding of scripture. Okay. Now we're going to go to our third point. So our first point was that America does not have a covenant relationship with God the same way that Israel did. Our second point is that God expects all nations to follow general principles of his standards of justice, particularly multiply and fill the earth and not murdering people. Okay, our third point tonight is that America has flourished as a result of several values that are rooted in scripture. But that seems to be waning. And that is a big problem. I think that there are um, several ways of thinking and being that we take for granted in our country and in kind of common society uh, that are actually rooted and grounded in the Christian worldview. Um, I've heard, I heard somebody call it recently that we live in the light of, of the ghost of Jesus. I, I, I don't think most Americans or even most Christians can see the connection between some of our country's founding principles and the Bible. And um, so I'm going to try to maybe just bring a few of those to the forefront to provoke your thinking. And maybe you'll start to make some additional connections too. But I also think we have to recognize that we are living in a cultural moment when we seem to be transitioning from one set of cultural values that are commonly shared by the majority of people. And we are transitioning to a different set of cultural values. So values that we took for granted 
I think are quickly disappearing. And uh, perhaps though through that process, um, the, I think what could happen, one possibility is that it will be more clear to us how our country's founding principles are actually hooked to scripture because as things go away, we're going to start thinking, Hey, wait a minute, what happened to this, this value and this idea? Um, I think that some of those things are going as they go away, we might have more appreciation for, Oh, wait, we valued this because it was actually founded on the Christian worldview. That's just a thought. Um, So let's start uh, by looking for a minute at this critical line in the Declaration of Independence, one of our founding documents in our country. Um, And it says here, I'm going to scroll down a little bit to the second paragraph. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So this is quite a um, revolutionary statement. Uh, The Declaration of Independence goes on to refer to uh, the laws of nature and nature's God, it, it closes by appealing to the supreme judge of the world. It, it notes that the signers are relying on the protection of divine providence. So the founders are using all of this Christian rhetoric. And it, it, this, this rhetoric is present throughout our founding documents and their ancillary writings and explanations. And so I think that this shows a good data set that many of their thoughts were shaped in some measure by broad principles of the Christian worldview. Now, again, I'm not arguing that all of our founding fathers were Christians or that, that Christianity was the only framework that was influencing them. I think it was one of the critical frameworks, but there were other frameworks as well. Again, such as Greco-Roman Republican uh, government, uh, the philosophy of John Locke, the rise of the Enlightenment, and all of these things kind of coalesced into the, the founding of our country and the thought that went into that. But I don't think that many of us today have an appreciation for what truly novel and startling idea that human dignity was at the time. I mean, the very idea that humans have equal value, dignity, and worth. This is just an idea that we take for granted, but this had not always been the common thought. The world had been divided according to kings and servants and slaves for as long as there had been humans practically until humans started living in civilizations after the Neolithic revolution. I mean, one group of people uh, would conquer another group of people. I taught this to my children the ancient Sumerians, when they started living in city-states, um, Sargon the Great came and he started conquering the city-states and coalescing them together into a, into a larger kingdom. That's the dynamic. We see Genghis Khan in, in Asia doing the same thing. We see Alexander the Great conquering the ancient world um, all the way into nearly modern times where the sun was said to never set on the British Empire. World history... It, in in some measure, is a series of conquering nations. And the, the very rich and the powerful conquered the very poor. And I, I think that Dr. Walter Williams, who, who recently passed away, he was an uh, incredible intellect and an economist. He summarized this dynamic very well in this quote. He says, prior to capitalism or what we might look at as as even the founding of of America, the way people amassed great wealth was by looting, plundering, and enslaving their fellow man. Capitalism made it possible to become wealthy by serving your fellow man. Then this idea that the individual could serve their community through business 
and the rise of Adam Smith and, and the ideals of capitalism were commensurate with the rise of the ideals of our country. And so these things were, were looked upon as being sister movements. This is all rooted and grounded in the idea of the individual having dignity, value, and worth. And that each human life had um, inherent value, regardless of our socioeconomic status. Uh, this was completely a revolutionary idea that one person could could go from being born into poverty, start a business, and ascend to something greater. Um, that the idea that that they would go to court and and have their their hearings be heard, the rich and the poor, in the same way, in the same law courts. This was a very revolutionary idea. Where did our country's founding fathers get such a crazy idea? In Genesis 1, in the Bible, Genesis 1 says this, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, that they may rule over the earth. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. These two simple verses serve as the foundation for what we today call human rights. And these are a, a key cornerstone of what we call the Judeo-Christian worldview. And it's this idea, this radical, crazy idea on which our country was founded, that humans have equal dignity no matter where they're from, no matter who your mama and your daddy are, no matter how much money you have, no matter if you're male or female. There's no other worldview that, that has this idea. Now, now, secular humanists, people who don't believe in God, but they still want to make the world a better place, will try to affirm equal rights and human dignity, this classical liberalism, and they try to do this apart from God. Uh, but in my opinion, when they do this, they are actually borrowing from our worldview because secular humanists do not affirm a creator. They believe that humans are the product of random chance evolution. And if I'm really honest, I have difficulty. I don't know how you arrive at human dignity if there is no creator. If I am just the product of matter in motion and chemicals, why do I have dignity? Why do I have any more dignity than another animal? Um, this is, in my opinion, a profound moral problem for the secular humanist, but that's a podcast for another day. Um, but if we just say that human dignity comes from cultural consensus or that the government grants rights to people, then the government that gives rights to people can also redefine those rights and take them away. But our Declaration of Independence is something so radically different than that. It actually says, no, it's not the government who gives you the rights. The rights are come to you from the creator. The government's in charge of protecting the rights. And our founding fathers just seem to, to understand that humans are created in the image of God, that there's something unique, different, and special about them. And um, whereas the secular humanist assumes human dignity is a thing, and then they go from there, but they don't have the creator underneath it. And so what happens when, when consensus, the, the ideals of consensus change when a majority of the people decide that a minority of the people don't have the same rights, this is exactly what happened in Nazi Germany to the Jews. There was no fundamental human dignity. There was consensus and the government decided who was valuable and who wasn't. That's, that's how that works. So our founding fathers of our country, they knew that no government could give human rights. That was something that had to come from the creator alone. It was something that existed outside of ourselves, something transcendent that gave humans their dignity. And one of the other things I find completely remarkable about this statement in the Declaration of Independence is that it is, it is based, because it is based on scripture and not fallible humans, it, it had more depth than the, the sinful humans hearts of the human framers. I mean, many of them did not fully grasp that this dignity extended to slaves or the indigenous people or to women. But our country has been able to pursue 
a more consistent application of this grand ideal. Why? Because this grand ideal wasn't didn't wasn't birthed in the minds of these founding fathers, as brilliant as they were. It was birthed in scripture and they just discovered it and then applied that to the enterprise of the um, the public, uh, the, the public square. So my first point was that all humans have equal value and dignity. My second point is that all humans are sinful. This is a second very critical idea that the founders used to shape our government. And this is where we get the idea of the separation of powers. The faith of the founding fathers taught them that humans were sinful. As James Madison wrote in the Federalist, number 51, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, govern men, neither external or internal controls on government would be necessary. The founding fathers understood that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. They, they understood this conviction that at man's foundational base, he was sinful. This conviction lay, led them to avoid utopian experiments, such as those that were later pursued with the French Revolution. Um, and I would say communism is another utopian experiment. And they adopted a constitutional system that was characterized by a separation of powers, checks and balances, and federalism. In other words, not a centralized federal government, but a state-heavy um, state government. So now... This was not without its dispute. There were some founding fathers who wanted a more centralized government run by experts. And that debate continues to this day. I think we're still in that conversation, state rights versus federal rights. But there was this foundational assumption and belief that humans were sinful. And so we need to construct a government that keeps that in mind. So things like three branches of government, separation of powers, checks and balances, these were a result that stemmed out of a theological belief. Okay, the third amazing feature of our government is equality under the law. Um, individuals, no matter their station in life, were to be judged according to the same standards under the law. The rich um, shouldn't be able to bribe judges. They go to the same law courts as the poor. And the poor have the right to get their evidence impartially weighed. This was the idea of the jury system. They would be weighed, they would be uh, judged by their peers. The idea that, that a poor person and a rich person should both have representation, have the same type of trial, and they should be able to get their evidence impartially weighed. This is why the symbol of justice is blindfolded. Justice is to be blind. There is a type of impartiality that is supposed to be part of our justice system and weigh and evidence is weighed impartially. Now, again, it's worth asking the question, has our country perfectly lived up to these ideals? No, clearly we have not. And we continue to struggle and to strive better. However, these ideals that stand at the center of our law and justice system are rooted and grounded in scripture. And they're rooted and grounded in, in principles that our founding fathers, many of them gleaned from the old Testament and things that I've been talking about on my podcast for the last few months. So I'm going to refer you to my teaching series, answering God's call to justice. Hopefully our moderators can put a link to that in the chat for more on that issue of how those Old Testament principles were applied to our justice system. Um, so, but again, I think that these are ideals that we just simply take for granted. We, we don't think that we aren't consciously aware of like how revolutionary and unique these things were and that they came from scripture itself. Now, again, I am not arguing that America has special nation status, a covenant relationship with God. What I am arguing is that our founding fathers were trying to create a secular government, but that it was based on many principles that were from scripture, as well as other principles from the Enlightenment, John Locke philosophy, and 
um, Greco-Roman uh, Republic democracy ideals. Okay, our fourth, our fourth critical idea uh, that from our, the broadly Christian worldview is the idea of individual freedom. Our country um, is one that was founded on the ideal of the individual. And if we look for a minute at the First Amendment of the Constitution, it's what we call the Bill of Rights. We see this. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble or to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Again, we take this for granted, but this was a revolutionary idea. The founding fathers believed that because humans were created in the image of God, they were capable of reason and logic. And because of this, individuals should have the right to congregate, to hear ideas, to convert religions, to deconvert from a religion, to be an atheist, to speak out against the government, to wave a flag and support the government, to speak out against ideas we agree with and disagree with. Why? Because of the idea of persuasion was seen as a foundation of the human person. People have a fundamental right to be sloppy in their thinking or careful in their thinking, stupid or smart. But how do we fix these problems? Through persuasion, through better arguments. So when we see, um, for example, in John chapter 8, there was this very collectivist idea in, in, in John chapter 8 where the, the Jews thought, that their connection as Abraham's descendants there in verse 33, that, that because of their connection with Abraham, they would be saved. And, and he's, Jesus says to them in verse 37, I know you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking to kill me. <laughs> so what's, what's going on here? And they say, Abraham's our father. And he says, if you're Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. But that's not true. You're actually not Abraham's children. You're children of the devil, <laughs> okay? So he's basically saying you can't rely on your connection to Abraham to save you. It's an individual matter. All of us will stand at the great white throne judgment as individuals, okay? We will all be judged on our personal relationship with God. We won't be judged according to our mom and our dad's faith or our skin color or our group or our nation, we will be judged as individuals. Now, does God judge nations? Yes, we made that case earlier in this teaching. But when it comes to the final judgment, we will stand before him as individuals. So just as Jesus gives us absolute freedom to run amok in our lives, <laughs> he will keep the door open for us to come to him, to be persuaded, to hear arguments, to, to encounter Jesus. And he, he's not going to force us to believe in him. But there is that, that look at the individual. This was a critical feature of what our founding fathers believed to be true about human persons. So the, the idea of the First Amendment, part of it is that, that because we're created in the image of God, we can undergo persuasion. We can even have crazy ideas that are totally false. We can disagree with each other. And this is what historically has been meant by tolerance. People of different beliefs have the freedom to live peaceably side by side and coexist. The preamble of the United Nations organizing document has this interesting line based on this very principle. It says to practice tolerance and live together in peace as with one another as good neighbors. What it means to be a good neighbor, classically speaking, is knowing we can disagree with each other. We can have these conversations but we have a God-given right to have that free speech protected because he has made us as individuals. What we're seeing today is a changing of that sentiment. Now ideas are dangerous. And if you don't have the idea that the culture says is correct, you can be canceled. Free speech is no longer valued. Rather, correct speech is what's allowed. And in order to be correct, it must reflect the moral values of social justice and critical theories 
definitions of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it's no coincidence what we're seeing today, that these pillars of individual human dignity, equality under the law, free speech, um, that, that hu- humans are sinful. These are the very pillars that are being strategically targeted by neo-Marxists. And they have been that way since the 1930s. It's just a fact of history. The difference now is that enough headway has been made in the academic realm that we are seeing now what we are witnessing in our broad culture, the popular culture, is the trickle-down effect to the common person. And so for more about that, I'm going to commend to you my friend Jeffrey Bashir's book, The American Crisis. It's a thick book. It's not for sissies. But if you really want to understand the cultural moment and how we got here historically, if you want to understand the history, this is a great book. Um, it's a long read, but he will lead you through all the historical details from the 1930s forward, even before that, from the Enlightenment and how we got to this cultural moment. So let's go back to our original question. Is America a Christian nation? Well, I would say no, it is not. If you are meaning by that, you're asking the question, does America have a special covenant relationship with God the way that Israel did? No, America does not have that. But if you're asking me whether America was founded on principles, general broad principles of moral good, that were founded in the Judeo-Christian worldview, I would say, yes, in that sense, in that context, some broad features of the Christian worldview provided an important intellectual influence in our country's founding fathers. Without Christianity, we would live in a very different world. I want to thank you for watching tonight. I do hope you found this teaching helpful. I also hope you have a Merry Christmas Lord willing, I'll see you next week with part two of this series, One Nation Under God. Good night and God bless. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.